Open your Bibles to the book of James chapter 1, verses 12. James chapter 1, verses 12. And if you haven't been around, we are working our way through the book of James, uh, which has been an absolutely awesome experience so far. Is anybody learning anything as we've been working through the book of James? Only some people, all right. Better get better at my job. Um, I've been learning a whole bunch, and it's been, I've really enjoyed just diving into this uh, practical, powerful epistle, the book of James. And today we're going to read James chapter 1, verses 12, and that's all we're going to look at today. We're going to spend the next few moments we have together encouraging ourselves in the Lord. Amen? James chapter 1, verses 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test of uh, so for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James is writing to the earliest Christians, the those who converted from Judaism to Christianity in the earliest days of the church, and is writing to a group of Christians who are now under pressure, economic pressure, social pressure, because they have turned from their old way of living towards Christ. And so they're in a place where there's pressure being applied. We know throughout the last few weeks that James says, consider it joy, make a conscious decision to be joyful, to have a godly hope, a godly joy when you endure various different kinds of trials. He's saying, when trials come, because we have hope and eternal hope in Jesus, then we can have joy in the midst of a challenge. That, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for God is with me. James is encouraging believers that because we have hope in Jesus, we can look uh, be through the current pain or problem that we're in and still find a place of joy that is unexplainable. So then James gets here and he he says, blessed, fortunate, well off or happy is the man who remains steadfast, who is unwavering, persistent, strong and composed under trials, which are tests or temptations persecutions. He says, for when he has stood the test, he will receive, be given, or attain, or be able to accept the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And today we're going to spend our time unpacking and understanding this gift, this crown that we receive that has been promised to us by God for enduring tests and for loving Him. Amen? The overarching and dominant theme of the book of James is that true faith is a faith that works. True faith, not dead faith, but living faith, is a faith that has action attached to it. But one of the biggest criticisms of the book of James is that his doctrine of works is contradictory to Paul's 
teaching of grace, which is the unmerited favor of God. However, James and Paul are not contradicting one another, but rather they are actually complementing one another. They're speaking to two different sides of the same coin, and they're actually working together to give us a full picture of what it means to walk or rest or function in the rhythms of grace, in the undeserved, divinely inspired life by the Spirit that God has for us. The the anchor scripture for the doctrine of grace we find in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Today I want us to be challenged in understanding that as a Christian, you are called and dare I say required not to sit in the apathetic seat of complacency with your ticket to heaven, but the God-inspired life to do good works in the earth to represent the God that you say that you serve. Paul writes here that you're saved by grace, the unmerited favor of God through faith, the substance of things hoped for being Jesus. You're saved by the unmerited favor of God because of your faith in that which you cannot see with your eyes. This is not of your works, Because if it was from what you did, then you'd be able to boast in your salvation. And Paul's saying, you can't earn your salvation. That's why we can find people who sit themselves in church and obey the Word of God week in, week out, and find their way to heaven. We can also find someone who was the worst sinner you could imagine on his deathbed, receives and submits to the Lord Jesus Christ, and both will inherit eternal life. Because it's not based on your good works, but by faith in Christ alone. Paul drives it home in Ephesians, in Romans, in Galatians. Every time Paul is writing, he's emphasizing, is that the right word? You never know. Grace, that you can't save yourself. But then he says that we are his workmanship, meaning God formed us. He fashioned us. He created us in Christ Jesus So those who are not in Christ Jesus are not saved. And when we become new creations in Christ Jesus, the Bible tells us the old is gone and the new has come. So when we are created, sorry, we are God's workmanship created in Jesus as new creations by His grace. He created us for good works. To do something with the life you've been given which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in the good works that He prepared by giving us this life by grace in Christ alone. Paul and James are not contradicting each other. 
Paul is saying you cannot save yourself. And James is saying if you genuinely have received the grace of God and are following Christ, prove it. Prove it. Anybody enjoy sports? Come on. Anybody enjoy the NBA? Now, as you can tell by my height and potential agile nature, I love basketball. When I was in school, my dream was to play in the NBA. I, I had a great desire to play basketball professionally, except there was a few things working against me. But I love it, and I've recently realized, and it's making me feel old. I know I'm not old, but it's making me feel old, that I've been supporting my team, the Denver Nuggets, to save questions. I moved there when I was 10 years old, and I did my schooling from age 10 to age 14 in Denver, and I became a Denver Nuggets basketball fan. And that means I've now been supporting the Denver Nuggets for 26 years. It's a long time. I realized the other day, and, and, and I love them, and I used to go watch them, and they were so bad. And it was amazing because you'd get to go to their arena, and you'd pay the $15 back then to sit in the top row, and at halftime, there was nobody there, so you'd sneak all the way to courtside, basically, and get the best view of your team losing every single week. I loved it. I used to, if I couldn't watch the game on TV, I used to put on my radio as an 11-year-old. I loved it. And what's happened is, in 2023, something great has happened. The Denver Nuggets, for the first time in franchise history, won the NBA championship. Come on, celebrate those Denver Nuggets. Absolutely amazing. And they're seven foot tall, most awkward looking giant named Nikola Jokic from Serbia, won the finals MVP. He's a beast. He is unorthodox and he's uncomfortable to watch, but he beats them all. No one can stop him. And what's amazing and what I want to point out about this great year in 2023, my daughter was born, the Nuggets won the championship, I and mean, this is a good year for me is that the whole team, all of the Denver Nuggets, the ones who played every minute of the game and the ones who sat on the bench cheering the whole time, they are all champions. They all get a big ring. They all get to celebrate as champions, but only one of them received the MVP award. And what I want to talk about today is an idea that can be uncomfortable, an idea that I've really looked over most of my life and not truly understood the importance or the power is that as Christians, we are saved, but the Bible teaches us clearly that there are rewards in heaven for those who do good works on earth. It's like the Denver Nugget. This, this isn't a salvation issue we're talking about. Your works can't save you. But there are varying awards or rewards or benefits for a Christian who lives his life according to the Word of God, for the glory of God and the power of God, and does good things for God. 
And in in an age of grace, in a teaching of grace, this is the kind of thing that we don't want to look at. But if it's in the Bible, it's important that we address it. Amen? I mean, I think so. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10. Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of you may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The context of what Paul is writing here, he's he's speaking of the idea that to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain, meaning that while we are in this earthly tent, this body, our flesh and bones, we are away from the Lord. And Paul is saying that he longs to put off this tent so that he can be with the Lord, because if you don't know, this is but a temporal life, and we have an eternal life with God forever. Heaven is our home. So to live, sorry, to to die is gain. Paul is presenting that right now we're on earth. There is brokenness, there's hurting, there's pain. We can see it all around us. And he says, I long to be with the Lord, to put off this tent, and be with the Lord, but to live is Christ, is meaning that while we have breath in our lungs, let all that we do be for the glory and the cause of Christ. Paul is saying, I can't wait to put this tent off to be with the Lord, but while I'm here, I'm going to live for the glory and the cause of Christ. You might be sitting in here this morning and you're a Christian, you believe the Bible, you believe in Jesus, friends, then the challenge and the encouragement today is that all that you do, every minute of your life, and I'm not saying it's easy, but there has to be a place of at least challenging our conscious thinking, let all that you do be for the glory and the cause of Christ. Paul says in Verse, in, in verse 9, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, right before we get this scripture, he says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. Whether we are at home or away, he says, we make it our aim to please God. Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for what we have done in this, in this, might need a new one. Danny, will you pay for it, please? That we'll be judged for what we do in this life, in this body. Our present day actions have eternal consequences. Our temporal work now has eternal rewards later. And I, like you, was quite confronted when studying this. When, when, when I've grown up, you see how I have matured, I've grown up. 
not growing. I've grown up. In this world of grace, and that is, it's a gospel of grace, not of works. But if we don't understand that the gospel of grace requires us to work, then we're missing out on a section of what God has for us. We're not trying to strive for salvation, but Paul says we do strive to please the one who saved us. If we're lazy and apathetic, the world around us is going to go to hell, literally and figuratively. So what's the judgment seat? Because normally when we hear the word judgment, we think of it negatively, correct? The judgment seat here in the context is, is Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat is, is, is this word bema, B-E-M-A. And it's a term that really refers to a raised platform where officials conduct judicial matters. And here we see that Paul says we must all appear before the raised platform where the judge who is Jesus is going to judge us. But it's not for salvation. It cannot be for salvation because he says he's going to judge us based on what we did. And if we were being judged by Christ for what we did to earn salvation, then we're not saved by grace. We'd be saved by works, which we know emphatically is not the gospel. It's in fact, one of the very things the gospel rails against and so here we have the judge Jesus sitting on a raised platform where we must all appear to be judged for what we have done in this tent on this earth. And so Christ is the judge, but it's so important. We understand that he is not judging our salvation, but he is judging our works. There's another judgment seat. There's the great white throne of judgment where Jesus will sin, and there he will separate the sheep from the goats. There he will judge those who inherit eternal life and those who inherit eternal damnation. But this judgment seat is not that seat. This is the judgment seat of Christ, where we will all go and give an account to the Lord Jesus for what we did in this life that He gave us by His grace. You ever heard of the parable of the talents? I'm going to read it for us. I don't know if this one's going to be on the screen. It is. Josie, you're so good. Can we just give Josie a round of applause? She's just, she's very good. I'm going to read it in the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verse 14. Jesus giving his parable. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another one. Anybody, any one talent people in here? Yeah, I know how you feel. Any two talent people, some five talents? Danny's a five talent. 
You know, Danny can sing, Danny can play guitar, Danny can preach, Danny can look after your horse. I mean, Danny can do everything. Show us. Get up and do it. So also, <laughs> to each he gave according to his ability. Then he went away. Verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with him. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the man with five talents worked hard and made five more talents. And the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. And so I'm going to reward you by making you faithful over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22, and see also, sorry, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you, do, sorry, where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, sorry, here you have what is yours. But his master answered him and said, You wicked and slothful servant, what I want you to see is the first two did something with what the master had given them. And because they did something, they received more. They received a reward or an inheritance. But the, the last man with the one talent, he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't go and spend the one talent on sin or selfishness. He just did nothing. He did nothing with it. And so the master answered him and said, You who did nothing with the thing that I gave you, you wicked and slothful servant. This is encouraging. Anybody feeling encouraged? You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give, it, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have 
in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping, and as my dad always says, ganashing of teeth. Jesus is giving this parable about the day when the master returns. We all know that Jesus is going to return one day, amen? That he's going to come like a thief in the night. No one knows when it's going to happen, but there will be a day. And here the master has come and he's asking his servants to give him an account of what he did with what he gave them. Two of them said, Master, this is what I did. I doubled what you gave me. I did good. And he said, well done, good and faithful servant. But the last man, his error was not that of sin, but it was that of apathy. He didn't do anything. And what he had was taken and given to those who already had. You see, Jesus is giving us a picture not of working for your salvation, but what are you going to do now that you're saved? James says, our main passage for the day, James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has given to those who love him. So James is saying the ones who do something will receive something. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Unless it's 2023 where everybody gets a prize. You get a prize, you get a prize, you get a prize. Why work hard? You're just going to get a prize anyway. That's not a good way to run your life. He says, don't you know that only one receives the prize? So run so that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Here we have Jesus, the perfect man, the Holy One of God, giving us an example of that we're supposed to do something with the life that He's given us. Here we have James, the man who loves works, saying, hey, you need to do something. But when you do something, you're going to receive a crown. And here we have Paul, the one who is obsessed with grace, undeserved favor, telling us the same thing saying, hey, run to win, work hard, do good, and you will receive not a perishable crown or a perishable wreath, but an eternal crown, a reward for eternity for what you do now. Paul, you have to know, was not lazy or apathetic in his faith. He, he in fact, tells us that he worked harder than everybody. Yet he was the grace-preaching Paul. They all teach us that we're saved, but that because we're saved, we're all called to do 
good works. And that the good works that we do do will be judged and rewarded accordingly. It's very quiet. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. It says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, the great day, judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In the day of judgment, what we have all done will be tested and tested by fire. Gold, silver, and precious stones will survive and be rewarded. Wood, hay, and straw, it will be burned up. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with wood, hay, and straw, but it's not what's going to be eternal. You can have good works that have eternal value, and you can have evil works that are terrible, but you can also have regular works like mowing the lawn. We all do things in life, but not everything that we do carries eternal value. So of course, there are some things we do that are evil, that are sin, that are wicked, and of course, we're saved and your sin is not what unsaved you because your works didn't save you, so your bad works won't unsave you, but they will be burnt up on the day of testing by fire. Your regular works that you did for really nothing, they will be burnt up like wood, hay, and straw, but that which has eternal value, that which brings glory to God, that which we do for the cause and the glory of God, the gold, the silver, the stone, it will be rewarded. And Paul says, run to win. There's a prize in front of you. Run so you can win it. Work hard. Philippians 3, 13. Brothers, I do not Consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining or striving forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul says, press on towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And people that think like this, people that live this life to win for the glory and the cause of God, they're the mature ones. 
So a mature Christian understands that we're not saved because of what we do, but my goodness, because of what He did for you, we have a responsibility to work and work like it matters, work like somebody's life is on the end of your hard work because it is. This world is going to hell. People are going to hell. People are broken. People are hurt. And we have a responsibility as the children, the co-heirs with Christ, the co-workers with the Lord to do something. And the Bible teaches us, you might be saved, but friend, if your work has no eternal value, it'll be burnt up. You'll still be saved, but only by fire. But if you do, if you work, if you build my kingdom and my eternal purpose, I have awards. I have rewards for you. I have blessing for you. Amen? Now, we see that Paul says in first, 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 thank you. first Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that all, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So you run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control or disciplines themselves in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath or a perishable crown, but we do it to receive an imperishable crown. Worship team can come. This word crown is pretty cool. And to close out today, I want to show us four crowns that we are rewarded with for good works. But to understand this crown the Bible talks about, we have to understand that it is not a crown of royalty or regalness. It's not a crown that you see placed upon the head of a king. It speaks of a wreath or a garland made from leaves, which was given in the earliest Olympics to victorious athletes or kings who were victorious in battle. So it's not a crown of kingship. It's not a crown of regalness. It's a crown of achievement, not status. Because the only status you need is that as the son and daughter of the living God. We're not working for a greater status in the eyes of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus for those who live in, according to His purposes. It's not about making God value us more. It's not about making God value you more. You're not working so that God thinks better of you. Because it's not a crown of status. It's a crown of achievement that says, well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you something. I gave you life by my grace and you did something of value with it. And I want to crown you with a crown of achievement, with a reward from God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. The first crown is what they call, is what the Bible calls the imperishable crown which I just read to you. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it for an imperishable crown. 
It's a crown of endurance. It's a crown of victory for doing something with the life that God gave you and not just doing something, but doing something for the glory and the cause of Christ. And you will receive not an earthly crown, a brittle crown that will crack, like building up wealth. We know we talked about it last week, that we build up wealth on earth, but it has no eternal value. You can't take it with you. We're not trying to build earthly crowns. We're trying to build eternal crowns that are not for our glory, but for His glory, but because it's for His glory and He saved us and He called us and He filled us. He inspired us because we do it for His name's sake. It's for His glory, the reward that we get given. It's not a self-centered life. Well, I'm going to do this so that I get a reward. We're doing it because we love the one who saved us, changed us, healed us, filled us with his spirit. And because of that, he gets glory because of the work that we did. And he crowns us with a crown, an imperishable crown, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. The second is the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4 verse 7. It says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is Paul writing to Timothy just before he's about to die. I have fought the good fight of faith. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul was persecuted more than most. Hardships, trials, challenges, all for the name of God all for the name of Jesus. He said, in amongst all of that, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me also, but to all who have loved His appearing. All who have looked forward to the return of the King all that have lived their life with their eyes set on the author of life, all that have kept their hope found in Jesus that they could walk through a living hell and still be okay, to all that have considered it joy to be persecuted and challenged for His name's sake, to all who have loved His appearing and are waiting for the great and glorious day of the Lord, for those who have kept the faith, who have fought the good fight. There's a crown of righteousness awaiting us. Amen. An imperishable crown. The third is the crown of glory. This one's a little bit different. This crown of glory, the Bible says, is set set aside for the elders, the pastors, and the leaders of the church. Again, it's not because their status is higher, but it's because there's a responsibility that comes with those who take on the role of pastoral care, of leading churches. The Bible teaches that those who teach the Word of God uh will be judged stricter, that there's a stricter judgment on my life than on those who don't teach the Word of God. That's the weight and the responsibility that comes with taking on the responsibility, according to God, to teach the Word of God. I think there should be a, 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 a more pressing conversation around those who do want to teach the Word of God because there is a great weight and responsibility. And it says here in 1 Peter 5, 4, and it's going through a whole thing of talking about the shepherds and the elders of the flock. 
And he says, and when the chief shepherd, being Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And the fourth one is the crown of life. Spoken of in the book of Revelation and spoken of in the book of James. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, unwavering, confident, strong, faithful, under trials, temptations, challenges, problems, persecutions. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. This, the word crown is the Greek word Stephanos. And you can see the link where this crown that is given, the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, is given to those who endure, those who are steadfast. Stephanos, there's a man in the Bible called Stephen. He's the first recorded martyr. Stephen was a man of great faith, of signs and wonders, and he preached the unadulterated, unadulterated Word of God in the midst of a culture that, culture that rejected him. And when they put the pressure on, he didn't back down. He remained steadfast under trial. He was unwavering. He was strong. He was fully convinced. And Stephen was then stoned to death and became the first recorded martyr, someone who died for the name of Jesus. Stephen was stoned and the Bible says he dropped to his knees. He looked up into the heavens and he saw the heavens open up. Knowing that he was about to leave this tent behind and go unto glory and he said, God, Father, forgive them. Mimicking the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This crown of life is reserved for those who keep the faith no matter the trial. It's not a crown of status. God loves you. He cares for you. He's saved you. He's delivered you. And He wants to be with you forever. It's a crown of achievement to encourage us to step it up a notch and say, this world needs Jesus. My family needs Jesus. This nation needs Jesus. We are called for such a time as this to take light into the darkness, to take hope to the hopeless, healing to the broken. It's not a season of apathetic, laid back in my greasy grace. I can do nothing because God did everything. I can do everything because He gave me everything. He gave me His life. He gave me His Spirit. He has called me for such a time as this. We are called for such a time as this. 
It's time. We are the church. We need to rise. It's different for everybody. I'm not asking you to do my job. I'm not going to do your job. But whatever you do, do it for the glory and the cause of Christ. Build that which is eternal and receive the rewards that God has for us. It's not a self-seeking reward. The truth is it's a self-denying award that I choose to live this life as Christ. That whatever comes my way, whatever the pressure that comes, I consider it joy. It's the glory of endurance. All of the crowns are rewards for those who endure. I think it's the same crown with different angles. Some people would disagree. It's really not that important. What's important is that we endure. We persevere. Come hell or high water, we keep our eyes on Jesus. And because we keep our eyes on the eternal hope Jesus, the momentary pain, the challenge, the temptation, we can consider it a joy to be pressured, persecuted, for His name's sake. This is our time, church. We sang earlier the song for your children and your children. We want blessings for our children. And as I was in worship, I felt the Lord encourage me to encourage you. Parents, where are you valuing? Are you valuing the house of the Lord? Let me tell you, the world is aggressively after the children. You heard the song lately, we're coming for your children? The world is after our children. You have a responsibility. I sat there and felt so grateful that my parents valued the house of God, that the house of God was a priority in my family. I didn't always walk with Jesus, but what was amazing is I never hated the church. I always liked going. I liked being in the back row. I liked running around up the back. I liked doing things you're not supposed to do while you're at church. I liked being there. In fact, my parents, if I would get in trouble, would say, you're not going to church. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish. As we sang the song, I was so thankful that my parents valued the house of God. As Savannah's parents are in town with us for the, the next six weeks, I'm th so thankful that they valued the house of God. Are you raising your family? Are you teaching your children to receive temporal awards or eternal rewards? I'm not saying the temporal things aren't good. I love it. I love a challenge. I'm very competitive. I love to win. I love the feeling. I love watching the Denver Nuggets as they win their first championship as tears overwhelm these adult men who have given everything. I love it, but friends, it will perish. There's more to this life than achievement in the world. And you and I as parents, as leaders in the kingdom of God have a responsibility to value what God values to raise your children, to train them in the ways of the Lord, the Bible says, and they will not depart from it. 
They might wander. They might take the long route. Trust me, for my parents, I took a very long route around, but I ended back up in the house of the Lord because it was instilled in my heart and in my life as something worth valuing. We need it. The world needs it. The children need it because we are all called to live life for the glory and the cause of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Come on, let me celebrate the Lord this morning.